the least healthy people were the ones that could not deal with stress, right? They're the ones that got sick and died off. The ones that could deal with stress are the ones that survived, thereby selecting for organisms that these people harbored that helped the host deal with stress. Welcome to the Wild and Well Collective Podcast, where we believe empowered health is your superpower. We have combined our expertise in medicine and nutrition to bring you the latest research, expert insights, and success stories of people on a mission to live a big life. So buckle up and get ready to learn how to live wildly well. Welcome back for part two. Quran needs no further introduction. If you haven't already listened to part one, go back and listen to that first because it lays the foundation for everything he's about to share here. I am so excited to dive into today's episode where you're going to be learning even more about the power of your beautiful microbiome. I want to talk a little bit about the immune system. And, you know, when you mentioned the secretory IgA, I see some that are very, very low, some that are extremely, extremely high. And really what it sounds like is the root cause of that is just a lack of commensal bacteria that's actually speaking to that. And I know you've got multiple products and one of your products does include an IgG support, doesn't it? Does Yeah. I want you to speak to that product and how it differs from maybe a spore-based broader. What are you doing there with the product differentiation? Yeah, absolutely. And then, and, you know, on your, on your first question, I actually forgot to mention the role of the spores when it comes to the leaky gut. So I'll make sure to tackle that as well. So one of the products, so there's a product called Mega Mucosa in the Microbiome Labs range, and then IgG by itself, right? So IgG is uh, immunoglobulin G. Now that product has some IgM and IgA in it as well. So it has a variety of immunoglobulins. These are bovine immunoglobulins. So these come from cows. The advantage here is that, you know, you've got all these ruminant cows that are out there, you know, in the grasslands and eating. They come from good, healthy cows, fortunately. So they're in the grass, they're in the environment, they're eating. And so their immune systems are producing antibodies against a lot of things, a lot of environmental particles, a lot of mold and mold toxins and viruses and bacteria and all that. So these antibodies neutralize a lot of these things. Right. And and we get the advantage of being able to take that that serum from the cow, concentrate the immunoglobulins, and then be able to take that as a dietary supplement. Because what that does is it provides our mucosa layer, it doesn't get absorbed into your circulation. It works in the lining of your gut as these antibodies that are designed to neutralize things that can drive a toxigenic or inflammatory response in the body. Right. So it helps assist your immune system by reducing the toxigenic load of what's entering into the system, because those antibodies will absolutely lock onto something specific. This is what's different about using antibodies versus, let's say, something like clay or charcoal, right, which is all binder, but it binds everything. It just it grabs onto everything and just takes everything out, good stuff and bad stuff. What the use of immunoglobulins are really great because these are antibodies that have very specific targets. They target, you know, alpha toxin, for example, and that antibody only binds alpha toxin, doesn't bind anything else, right? If there's no alpha toxin in the system, you're just going to poop that antibody out, right? So that's the beauty of using those types of immunoglobulins. It mimics similar to what's, what your system is supposed to be doing by producing antibodies and secreting it into the mucosa. So this is an assist for your immune system. Going back to the question of the spores. Now, why we even 
you know, started working with spores and kind of came up with this idea of a spore-based probiotic is I always kind of looked at evolutionary biology for clues to understand what we should be doing, right? Where should we look for therapeutics? And when I got in the world of probiotics, one of my first questions to myself as I run through my own thought experiments is, you know, where did our ancestors get probiotics from, right? Assuming there are bacteria that you can consume that are going to confer a health benefit, right? That's really what a probiotic is. Where did they get it from, right? Clearly, they didn't have refrigerated sections of health food stores and, you know, capsules of unique things wrapped with seaweed and all these other crazy delivery systems. Where did they get their probiotics from, right? It's from nature, right? They they essentially, after they were born, they got their initial inoculum from mom passing through the vaginal canal. And then from breast milk, you get a lot of bacteria. And then from close interaction with mom, dad, and other community members in the first few years. Beyond that, most of your interaction with microbes is in the outside environment, right? Our ancestors ate dirt. They drank water from rivers and streams. They didn't sterilize their environment. So they had a lot of interaction with environmental microbes. So we started saying, okay, what about environmental microbes? Are there any environmental microbes that fit the scientific definition of a probiotic, which means that it should be a live organism when administered to the host confers a health benefit? So most environmental microbes, when you consume them, will die in the stomach because your stomach acid is designed to kill stuff coming through to protect the host, right? In case there's pathogenic or dysfunctional things coming through. So most will die in the stomach, which means that they can't act as a probiotic because they're dead, right? Then we said, okay, are there environmental microbes that can actually survive stomach acid? That's when we honed in on the bacillus endospores because these are unique microbes that have a way of wrapping themselves in an armor-like coating. It's a, it's a, it's a calcified armor-like coating that allows them to survive through the gastric system. So we said, okay, that's really interesting because nature has conferred on them a capability of surviving through gastric barrier. Then the next question is, well, what do they do once they move past the gastric barrier, right? Are they creating any sort of health benefit to the host? And we discovered that the spores have been used in the pharmaceutical industry in Europe and Latin America and parts of Asia as a treatment for dysentery since 1952. Right? It's a probiotic bacteria that's been used to treat a gut infection. right? And that's where it became really interesting to us because in order for a probiotic bacteria, a single species of probiotic bacteria to be able to be administered at relatively minuscule amounts, in this case, all the drugs that treat dysentery are two to four billion CFUs, right? which is far less than most probiotics in our space. But this is a two to four billion CFU of a single species that can go into your gut and treat an infection that's really bad that can kill somebody, right? So how does it do it, right? How can just 2 billion go into a sea of 50 trillion bacteria, find the ones that are causing the problem and bring their numbers down without damaging anything else? Well, this is where you get into the beautiful world of quorum sensing, right? So quorum sensing is where some of this mystery lies, right? which is similar to quantum mechanics. Like how do distant particles on either end of the universe instantaneously communicate with each other, right? We know this happens, it's called quantum entanglement, but how does it happen? We have no idea. Same thing with quorum sensing, which is how do microbes read each other's signatures to map out who's there and who's not there. And bacillus is one of those environmental microbes 
that, and when I say environmental, they sit in the environment waiting to get into the host, which is where they actually live. One of those microbes that does this quorum sensing in an amazing, beautiful way, which means that it has this capability of reading all the bacterial signatures once it enters into the gut. And when it reads the signature of a pathogenic organism, it makes its way over to the pathogenic organism and it sit next, sits next to it and it can destroy the pathogenic organism through a number of mechanisms. One is that it produces antimicrobials by itself and it can release that antimicrobial in that microenvironment killing the pathogen. Number two, it can flag the pathogen for destruction by your own immune system. Or number three, it can compete with the pathogen for, for space and for resources in that microenvironment, starving out the pathogen, right? So it has all these capabilities of doing that. It becomes like the SEAL Team 6 of your gut. It can go in with precision, identify the specific harmful organism, kill that organism, not touching or damaging anything else. Right. So, so this is what got us really interested in the spores because to us, this organism has certain types of innate intelligence on what should be in our microbiome, what shouldn't be, that perhaps not only can it kill bad things in your gut, perhaps it can increase the growth of good things as it identifies that there aren't enough prevalence, there isn't enough prevalence of good beneficial bacteria. So that was our hypothesis that we went into the world of probiotics with in order to, to start developing therapeutics around this concept of spores. I have a couple of questions really quickly on these spores. Safety for children and safety for those who are immunocompromised. I just wonder, does spore-based have any, yeah, it, if you can talk to those two populations really quickly before you move on. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest misconceptions of, of safety when it comes to probiotic bacteria is that the category of probiotics will, will in some way dictate safety, right? That lactobacillus means, oh, you're safe. Bifidobacter means you're safe. Spore, is it, is it questionable? That's not what dictates safety. What dictates safety in an organism is, does that organism have virulence factors, right? Meaning genes that confer virulence or or an infectious capability of that organism, right? That's the defining factor of whether or not an organism is safe. It doesn't matter what genus, what species it belongs to, if it has virulence factors, then it's unsafe. So there's lots of lactobacilli that have been known to cause infection. There's bifidobacteria that have been known to cause infection because they contain virulence factors. So there are spores that have virulence factors, absolutely. So one has to be careful. So you can't say in general, all spores are okay, or all probiotics are okay. You have to go further and do a full genetic map of the organism to identify the presence of virulence factors. And that's the only way to know safety, right? So, so when we first started, that's the first thing we did is we looked at the full genome map of the organism to understand every single protein that the organism produces and to run that against databases of toxicity and all that to understand does this organism have any virulence factors? Does it produce toxins? Can it become infectious? And when you determine that, that it cannot, then it doesn't matter who you give it to, whether it's immunocompromised kids, it doesn't matter. They won't cause infection, right? They don't have that capability. It's like domesticated animals versus non-domesticated, right? That's the idea that genetically they're not designed to be infectious versus being infectious. So, so they're absolutely safe, right? 
And our largest natural interaction with organisms comes from these kinds of organisms. So you imagine our ancestral babies were born and then they were placed in the dirt. And, and this is a very important feature of babies, right? If you think back, if you have babies of your own or you've seen babies, I'm sure you both have, handled babies in your past. One of the very weird things about babies, which is the kind of thing that I notice and I go, what the hell are they doing? Is they put everything in their mouth, right? They sample the world with their mouth, right? They can see, they can hear, they can smell, but yet everything new that they encounter, they put in their mouth, right? But the mouth is not the primary sensory organ for humans, right? Adults don't pick up a thing that we see for the first time and go, oh, I'm trying to send it out with your mouth, right? Yeah. You touch it, you smell it, you might look at it, and so on. The reason babies sample everything with their mouth is because they're designed when they're born or uh, when they're after they come out of the of the womb and they, they're put in the environment to get as much of the environment into their mouth. Because studies show that early exposure to like spore-based bacteria works with the commensal organisms that they got from mom to build the gut-associated lymphoid tissue and all the immune cells that exist in the gut. And we know that 70, 80% of all your immune tissue is in your gut, right? So the development of the gut-based immune system is dependent on exposure to environmental bacteria working with the commensals that you got from your mom. This is why it's it's innate in our ev evolution that as a baby, you sample the world around you with your mouth. You kind of get as many rocks and dirt and dung and all that into your system so you can get all these organisms into the system, right? As an aside, if you don't mind me saying, there's another thing, another curious behavior of kids that I think I've figured out why they do, and that's eating boogers. Right. I, if you're both honest with yourselves, you'd say you probably ate your boogers at one I point. I did, but my kids have. I don't get it. But okay, keep going. I did. Right. I remember eating them. Uh, I, yeah. And my kids, both my kids, when they were a certain age, do. Now, you notice that's another thing that's very innate for kids up to a certain age. And then, of course, they stop. Right. And this really triggered my thought when my son was, I think, three, three and a half. And he was in a playground and he was having kind of a conversation with a few other kids. And they were talking about eating their boogers. And they were talking about how my mommy says I shouldn't eat my boogers, but I eat my boogers. Do you? Yeah, I eat my boogers. And I was like, you know, that's so innate for them to do that. Why is it that they do that, right? Like, why do we have that instinct? Well, as it turns out, it starts to happen at a certain age, like usually around two and a half or so. And you come out of it by six, seven years old normally, right? Now, what is really important during that time period? So around two and a half, you've already started to develop your adult-like microbiome, right? From that point on, your microbiome is really starting to interact with your immune system to build out your profile of tolerance to the environment around you and to start to understand what the environment around you looks like, right? Keep in mind that the immune system doesn't have any forward-facing sensory organs, right? You don't have immune cells in your eyes and your skin and all that looking out to see what's in the environment that it has to protect the host from. It counts on inputs from the microbiome and things coming through the digestive tract to figure out what is coming in from the environment, right? So that age from two and a half to about five or six is a very important developmental period for your immune system. Now, what is a booger? A booger is a vaccine. Right. So if you if you it's a natural vaccine. So you're breathing in viruses and bacteria and dust and environmental particles and all that. And you've got all this mucus 
in your upper respiratory tract that tracks all of that, right? And then you've got these beautiful cilia, these hair-like particles that move all of that trapped mucus that contains all this potential antigens and pathogens and all that up your respiratory tract and down into the back of your throat. And then it, it starts to crust up in places like your nose. Now, when you pick all of that and you swallow it, you're essentially sending to your immune cells and your microbiome a sample of what's in your environment that you're breathing in. So your immune system can build a tolerance against it, right? So, so it's absolutely critical for kids to eat their boogers and allow that innate interaction to happen. But it's thinking about stuff like that that really gets you to start to learn how nature has intended us to work. And if we're just smart enough, we can learn those things and then facilitate them rather than trying to outsmart them with our own little mechanics and chemistry and all that stuff. Yeah. I love the way you think. That's genius. Yeah. <laughs> Back to no. basics, right? It's just the simple stuff that you think about. It is. And it's amazing when you can observe and learn and then really start to integrate. I think that people can tend to understand things on such a deeper level when it is a relatable topic like that to really grasp onto. And I know you mentioned then when I had the privilege of seeing you speak when I was in New Zealand, you know, specific spores and specific strains. And one of the ones that we talked about, and it's something I'm hugely passionate about, so I'm hoping you can dive into this a little bit, is the connection with the gut and the brain and how the specific strains can really impact our mental health. It can really impact our anxiety, but it also can really boost happiness. And I think this is a huge topic, you know, the, con the connection between serotonin and how that's produced in the gut. So can you kind of expand a little bit on that for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's two categories in which bacteria will, will have a significant impact on what you're talking about, the gut-brain axis, right? Mm -hmm. and number one, it's really important for people to know that the gut and the brain are intimately connected. In fact, they're more so than connected. They're actually two parts of the same system. From a physiological standpoint, there's a lot of similarities between the nervous system that covers the gut, which is called the enteric nervous system, and then the brain itself. And then there's free communication and, and collaboration between the microbes in the gut and the brain, and then the brain and the microbes in the gut, right? So it's a two-way highway between the two. And so there's a couple of important things to keep in mind. Number one, when you look at the relationship between the gut and the brain, there's a spectrum for that relationship. And this is a very important point, is that your gut and your brain are somewhere on the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, the gut is the most protective, supportive thing for the brain, right? It's going to maintain sharpness in your brain, memory, cognitive function, repair, all of those things. It's going to feed the brain all the nutrients it needs, all of the hormones and all that for the, for the human, the host that has the brain to feel happy, delighted, you know, have sadness when you need to be sad, deal with stress, all of those things, right? The gut can, will do all of that for the brain. On the other end of the spectrum, not only is the gut not doing all those things we just described, but it's also creating a significant amount of toxicity to the brain. So not only is it not supporting the brain, it's actually damaging and killing the brain over time, right? So your gut is somewhere on that spectrum of being the best thing for your brain or the worst thing for your brain, right? And, and your level of anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, cognitive dysfunction, mood disorders, brain fog, all of those things dictate to you where your gut-brain relationship is. Your level of digestive disorders like IBS, like food intolerances, like allergies and all that, 
also is an indication of where your gut-brain relationship may be. Because anytime your gut is dysfunctional, your brain is going to be dysfunctional as well. And anytime you feel dysfunction in your brain, it's oftentimes related to what's happening in your gut, right? So we cannot separate the two. The gut and the brain are intimately connected. Just a quick example of that. Take IBS, right? IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. It's, of course, a massive syndrome that encompasses lots of different disorders. But one of the things that now seems clear is that IBS is predominantly a gut-brain issue, right? So it doesn't matter if you have IBS-C, where you have lots of constipation, or IBS-D, where you have lots of diarrhea. It's a gut-brain issue. It's, in fact, an hyperactivity of your enteric nervous system, the neurological system that covers your gut. And it's driven in part by the relationship between the enteric nervous system and the brain, right? So if you take IBS individuals of any age cohort, right? They have upwards of 70 to 80% of them have definitive anxiety or depression, right? If you take the same age group of non-IBS people, it's less than 19%. So having IBS means you have four times more likely to have anxiety or depression, right? Those conditions go hand in hand because they're driven by the same thing. So then let's unpack the two different areas that we have to pay attention with when it comes to bacteria, probiotics, and the gut-brain access. So the first one is leaky gut that we talked about. As you mentioned, you know, most of your serotonin is made in your gut. Most of your dopamine is made in your gut. Most of the tryptophan, which is an amino acid that your brain and central nervous system uses to make serotonin that's used in the central nervous system. This is outside of the serotonin that's made in the gut. And most of the melatonin that's made in the brain, right, for sleeping and relaxing and all that, that tryptophan is also made in the gut, right? So basically everything your brain needs to become rational, focused, and all that is made in the gut. The other thing that's made in the gut is something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is another very important compound that repairs the brain every night when you go to sleep and repairs all the damage that occurred to the brain during that day, right? So you can wake up the next morning with the exact same brain you started off with the day before. And you're not waking up every morning with a slightly more damaged brain than the day before, right? So all of those critical components are made in the gut. Now, if your gut is leaky, as we talked about earlier, it means you've got an imbalance of microbes in the gut, which means that you're likely not making enough of any of those things in the gut to begin with, because those commensals that also prevent your gut from being leaky are Part of those commensals are also responsible for stimulating the production of all of these compounds we just talked about, right? So if your gut is leaky, you're not only are you leaking in things that create inflammation, but you're also not producing all of those brain supportive compounds adequately in the gut. So leaky gut right off the bat is a problem for the brain, right? The second reason why leaky gut is a problem for the brain is one of the primary things that leaks through a leaky gut is an endotoxin which is a toxin that's generated in the lining of the gut called LPS, lipopolysaccharide. That endotoxin, if it leaks through, makes its way to the brain often and can embed itself into serotonin and dopamine receptors in the brain, thereby interfering with the function of serotonin and dopamine in the brain, which dramatically increases your risk for anxiety, depression, mood disorders, attention deficit disorders, long-term issues like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and so on, right? So it's a triple whammy here, right? Your gut is, is dysfunctional, so it's dysbiotic. Because of that, it's leaky. Also, because of that, you're not making enough serotonin, dopamine, tryptophan, BDNF. Also, because of that, your gut is leaking in a toxin 
that neutralizes the ability to even use the dopamine, serotonin, and all that you may make at, at small levels, right? So that is a gut that is incredibly toxic and damaging to the brain, right? You've got lots of neuroinflammation. You've got lots of inflammation in the brain constantly. You, you can't utilize your happy hormone. You can't utilize your dopamine, which is your motivation reward center hormone. You don't utilize BDNF, so you can't repair your brain. You can't sleep because you're constantly stuck in a fight or flight response because the lack of serotonin keeps you in the fight or flight response. Your brain is constantly inflamed, which means you're activating cortisol to be released, which is your stress hormone. So you're constantly in this stress state. And that happens to be the condition of the vast majority of people in the westernized modern world, right? We've got this leaky gut. We've got a damaged brain. We're constantly stressed. We can't sleep well. We can't repair our systems. We're constantly inflamed, right? So it's really find that uh, really hard to find happiness. It's really hard to find passion. It's really hard to be tolerant of people and other stresses and all that. And and life just becomes a series of misadventures and misevents, right? Because you cannot found, ground yourself on anything. Your your brain is all over the place. You're constantly in fight or fight mode now. Stopping leaky gut becomes an obvious thing, right? Because you want to stop that cascading of dysfunctions. Using the spores, you can absolutely stop leaky gut. So in, in New Zealand, Australia, the product Gutsy, you know, in, in the US, Megaspore Biotic, those are the same products that we just have it in New Zealand as a, uh, as a brand called Gutsy. And so those are the products that are designed to stop the leakiness in the gut. We've published studies on this before. Now, the second part of it are the psychobiotics. This is where it gets super interesting, right? Because there are microbes that naturally live in the gut that are designed by nature to produce carbohydrates that stop all of the inflammation that goes on in the central nervous system. And in fact, they can go as far as shifting your brainwave patterns, right? We don't know exactly how that works, but we know that when you expose yourself to these microbes, they can bind the receptors in the lining of your gut that'll change your brainwave function, right? Let's talk about what that means. Well, we'll talk about the anti-inflammatory aspect of it as well, but let's talk about the brainwave function because this is so fascinating. This, again, goes back to that quantum physics type of you know mysterious stuff, so, right? We're nerdy out. We're really nerdy out here, right? So so if you're, for your listeners that are listening, your brain can function in high-frequency brainwaves or low-frequency brainwaves, Right? This two high-frequency brainwaves is two maps of low-frequency brainwaves. Now, what tends to happen is when you're really diligently working on something, if you're reading and you're working, you're working on numbers, you're doing art, whatever it is you're working that requires high cognitive capacity, you're typically in a high-frequency brainwave, right? You're in like a beta wave, for example. And that's great. You want to be in a high-frequency brainwave because you want to tap into lots of different regions of the brain and you're high-functioning at that time. If you encounter a stressor in the middle of that, someone that is very calm and can deal with stress well, what their brain does is when they encounter that stressor, it shifts to a low-frequency brainwave because you're much better off dealing with stressors in a low-frequency brainwave, right? Because what happens when you deal with a stress in a high-frequency brainwave is you start getting runaway thoughts, right? Your brain is actually dissecting and dismantling that stressor in a very unhealthy way. And in fact, amplifying the impact of that stressor in a very high, uh, in a very unhealthy way. And it becomes really hard to rationalize 
and deal with the emotional impact of that stressor when you're doing it in a high-frequency brainwave. If you're somebody that in the face of stress can tap into a low-frequency brainwave, you're somebody that's even keel balanced and has a very low propensity for anxiety, mood disorders, stress, depression, and so on, right? Now, one of the classical ways of training your brain to tap into low-frequency brainwaves is meditation, right? That is a primary advantage, advantage of meditation, right? When you're meditating, you're going into low-frequency brainwaves, right? So when your brain quiets down and you, you can kind of get all this enlightenment and all these wonderful things happen, you can affect body functions and all that, that's because your brain has quieted down, you've got a much deeper mind body brain connection you've got a the capability of your emotional centers of your brain the reasoning centers of your brain to work through things that shouldn't impact you you have a much more calm approach to life and the world around you right now if you meditate and you're good at meditating you can get into that state when you're meditating but it also trains your brain to touch into that state when you experience a stressor right so that's that's how your brain is supposed to work to protect you However, most people tend to be in a high-frequency brainwave all the time and find it very hard, if they can at all, tap into the low-frequency brainwave, right? This is why meditation is so hard for people, yeah. right? Because you cannot get yourself into the low-frequency brainwave, you know? And so, so that in itself becomes a struggle. What we found is that these psychobiotics that are naturally derived, that exist in some people's guts, can actually create a, a neurotransmitter signal from the gut to the brain within a two-week period, train your brain to go completely into low-frequency brain waves when you encounter a stressor. So it's changing how your brain pattern works in some amazing, mysterious way, right? We have great published papers on this from the most preeminent scientist on this, which is a uh, researcher out of, out of Germany that does a lot of work on this uh, low-frequency and high-frequency brain waves. So that's one way in which the psychobiotic protects your, your, your gut and your brain. And keep in mind, this is a natural organism that nature has created and is part of our evolutionary adaptation, right? Think about early humans that did a really poor job of dealing with stress and then ended up dying from it versus humans that did a really good job of dealing with stress and rationalized through it and worked through the problem and solved the problem versus freaking out and panicking and going nuts, right? And then remember early on, and I promise I would tie this back in, I mentioned that that paper that talked about the meta-analysis paper that showed that leaky gut was a primary driver of mortality and morbidity worldwide. Remember I mentioned that they showed stress-induced leaky gut was a primary driver, right? Because stress, if you cannot control stress, stress creates leaky gut. It creates leaky gut by allowing the proliferation of opportunistic pathogens. There are lots of pathogens in your system that lay dormant until they detect elevation in stress hormones. They know the host's immune system is compromised. That's when they start expressing their virulence factors and their toxins. That's when they start to overgrow. So multiple bouts of stress on a regular basis is like taking a bunch of antibiotics on a regular basis. It increases the growth of pathogenic organisms. It causes that dysbiosis, eventually causes leaky gut, and then all the risks that come, come along with it. So imagine from an evolutionary standpoint, the least healthy people were the ones that could not deal with stress, right? They're the ones that got sick and died off. 
the ones that could deal with stress are the ones that survived, thereby selecting for organisms that these people harbored that help the host deal with stress. But then you come to the modern world where we're dismantling our microbiomes all the time with antibiotics and pollutants and microplastics and herbicides and pesticides and all that, and we start killing off these organisms that help us deal with stress, we start getting an elevation of anxiety and stress, but those people don't die off because we got all this Band-Aid medication to keep them functioning, right? And so they can still reproduce and all that. They still have that capability, but it doesn't allow for natural selection anymore. So now what we have to do is go back and look for the organisms that allowed humans to deal with stress naturally, find them in the guts of certain people, bring them out, study them, and then make them available to other people, right? So that's the advent of psychobiotics. Psychobiotics are probiotic bacteria that specifically have an impact on your brain. And not only do they protect your brain from acute stress, depression, anxiety, and all that, they also protect your brain from long-term damage of stress, which is what leads to things like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, and so on. So they're so important, right? Because they deal with acute issues of stress and mood disorders and then long-term damage of the brain as well. I have two questions. So would you recommend, actually three, and I'll just combine it and we can piece it apart. But so the Zen Biome, I'm assuming, is the product that is the psychobiotic. Do you recommend that taking with a probiotic, with the megaspore in patients that are, you know, or, you know, people running a clinic and things like that that are under a lot of stress, uh, prone to freak out? Also, my next question is, do you recommend rotating even your own so that we aren't proliferating the same guys all of the time? Yeah. And the third one is in specifically with acromancia. Does your, you know, there are some, there is a specific probiotic specifically for acromancia, not in your product line. And so does your product line proliferate acromancia because that, you know, is directly involved with that mucosal lining? Yeah. So those are kind of three questions bundled into one. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really important question. Answer in that backwards order. So let's tackle acromancia. So acromancia is absolutely a keystone species. Really, really important inversely correlated with everything under cardiometabolic syndrome, which is lots of diseases like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, polycystic ovarian, and so on. It's also really important for the maintenance of the mucosal lining, like you said, right? So we have to have good levels of acromancia in order to just survive and, and, and be protected against some of the most prevalent chronic diseases. The thing about acromancia is two things. Number one is it's called acromancia mucinophilia, because it lives deeper in the mucin layer than any other organism, right? It's good at living in the mucin layer. So you don't shed a lot of it. It doesn't come out as frequently as other microbes. Number two is that it is an obligate anaerobe, which means oxygen is toxic to it. It cannot live in an oxygen environment, which makes it really, really hard to increase your own acromancia by taking it as a probiotic, right? Because the probiotic acromancia thereby is not the same as the acromancia that lives in your gut and cannot survive through the gauntlet of the digestive tract and survive through the oxygen in the environment, right? So what you're getting if you take a probiotic acromancia is you're getting a lot of dead acromancia. And some of that dead acromancia may have an, a metabolic advantage, but it's not going to increase your endogenous acromancia, right? So that hasn't been shown at all, even with, with the acromancia probiotics. It doesn't increase your endogenous acromancia. So you do need other techniques to increase your endogenous acromancia. And to me, 
that that is far more important than taking an acromancia supplement and getting a bunch of dead acromancia going through your system on a daily basis, right? We have to increase our keystone species. This becomes extremely important as you get older too, because one of the hallmarks of aging is this reduction in diversity and reduction in keystone species. So we have to be very active at continuously upregulating diversity and upregulating keystone species. So how do you grow acromancia naturally? This in part answers your first question because we have shown studies where the we're taking the spores and a combination of uh, spores and pro and prebiotics, in particular oligosaccharide prebiotics, will increase acromancia, endogenous acromancia, your own acromancia, a hundred to a thousand fold in as little as three weeks. Right? Again, the spores are fascinating because they can seek out dysfunctional bacteria and bring them down, but at the same time, they can also increase the growth of beneficial commensal bacteria. Because when you take the spores in that same study that we showed the increased growth of acromancia, we also showed that taking the spores for three weeks increased diversity of all beneficial organisms by 25 to 30%, right? So they're reforming and re uh, terraforming, if you will, the gut microbiome, right? So that's one way, taking the prebiotic and the spores. Number two is by taking polyphenols. Right, acromancia love polyphenols. So especially red, you know, berry-based polyphenols. So cherries, blackberries, blueberries, and so on. So berry-based polyphenols and citrus-based polyphenols will feed acromancia. The other thing that you can do to increase acromancia is fasting. You know, intermittent fasting will increase acromancia because it gives them a chance to proliferate by eating the top layer of the mucus while no food is coming in. Right. So just those things alone will dramatically increase your acromancia without the hope of taking a bunch of dead stuff through a probiotic, right? So, so that answers question number one. And then question number and three, question number two about rotating. The idea of rotating really came from the thinking that, okay, yeah, I've got a set of probiotics. We're going to, you know, increase the number of these microbes too much. So we should go to a different set and try to work on those numbers. But that's not actually how true, you know, probiotic bacteria is supposed to work. Most probiotic bacteria are going to be transient. In fact, all probiotic bacteria is transient, right? Almost, I can't think of a probiotic bacteria that goes into your gut and lives permanently. If it's truly a probiotic, meaning it's alive and it's functioning alive in the gut, it's going to leave after a period of two or three weeks, right? Or in the case of the psychobiotics, what actually happens to them? So take Zenbiome, the Bifidolongum 1714 psychobiotic, what's actually happening with them is when you consume them, they make it past the stomach acid, make it past the beginning part of the small intestine, they move to the payer's patches, which is in the terminal end of the small intestine. Your dendritic cells reach across, grab them, and bring them across the lining of the gut and digest the probiotic bacteria on the inside of the dendritic cells and spits out all the carbohydrates into circulation so the carbohydrates can make it into your neurological system and your central nervous system and your enteric nervous system. That's where those carbohydrates go to work on your gut-brain axis, right? So your own immune cells see them coming and specifically bring them across the lining to expose them into your circulation, right? That's a very intimate relationship that those types of bacteria have with our immune system. Spores, they're transient. They'll go in, they'll fix the gut, they'll do all kinds of stuff, they'll do all these metabolic activities, and then they resporulate and then they leave the gut in a matter of a couple of weeks. So you could take a hundred billion spores every single day, you won't increase the number of spores in your gut beyond a certain level because as many coming in, the equivalent amount goes out, 
right? So they balance themselves that way because just think about our ancestors got lots of exposure to spores in the environment on a, on a regular basis. And the goal of the ecosystem is to maintain diversity. So if you're getting lots of exposure to some organisms, you're going to lose diversity if those organisms stay and colonize forever. So, you know, evolution and nature has designed it where exposed uh, organisms maintain a certain threshold level and they don't exceed that. So you don't develop these dysfunctional cultures. Thank you. That was <laughs> super, super informative. I'm super curious. I know we are diving into so many topics and I'm also mindful that we are taking up a lot of your time. So I appreciate that. I'm wondering if you could leave our listeners with just a few key takeaways. I feel like leaky gut's been one of the biggest things we've spoken on, really dives into that root cause approach type healing. What would be some of like maybe your top three things, aside from obviously taking a spore-based probiotic, that you would really recommend for people that are listening to be able to go on action right now so they're preventing any of this or even healing from this. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of things. Let's boil down the three things, right? And uh, and I'll cheat a little bit on the three things because I'll make each of the three kind of a category of things to think about, right? Yeah. So, right, so know that your ecosystem is the biggest determining factor of your outcome, right? What your microbiome looks like is the absolute key to your disease risk, how you recover from things, how resilient you are, how long you're going to live, how you're, what mood you have, how you interact with people around you. All of those things are dictated by your microbiome. So for example, your skin microbiome is now shown to be an independent risk factor for chronic disease of non-skin disorders, right? In fact, there's a, lo a huge longitudinal study of, of aging called the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of aging that showed over a 50-year period that the number one predictor of whether or not somebody was going to die of chronic disease or get sick from chronic disease was what their skin microbiome looked like and how leaky their skin was, right? So your microbiome is absolutely important, which means that you have to be absolutely cognizant of the choices you make that either harm or help your microbiome, right? So category number one of things to think about is minimizing the things that you know will harm your microbiome, right? So take personal care products, for example, right? We all use all kinds of personal care products, some soaps, shampoos, lotions, and so on, cosmetics, and all that. The vast majority of personal care products will harm your microbiome on your skin or get absorbed and harm microbes in other parts of your body as well. So starting to clean up your personal care products is a huge advantage to your health, right? And, and this can seem daunting and overwhelming to people. It was to me as well, even thinking about cleaning up my personal care regimen. But I started with one thing, you know, I started with the deodorant. I was like, I'm going to find a natural clean deodorant that works for me. You'll probably try five or seven that don't work for you. You're going to feel like you stink, right? But you will eventually find one that is aluminum free and free of this, that, and the other things that you don't need to free your preservatives and and so on that will work for your chemistry. So once you find that deodorant, great. Now next look for a lotion that's very clean, right? That has three or four ingredients, not more than that, that doesn't have all these preservatives and all that, that's gonna kill microbes on your skin, right? So so starting with the personal care products, start to clean up one by one, and, and over time add a regimen of things that are really good and safe for your microbiome, right? Cosmetics, 
become one of the biggest sources of not only toxicity, but also things that damage your microbiome, right? So there are fortunately more makeup lines and all that coming out that are cleaner, that are designed to be a little bit more natural, a little bit safe. So start leaning towards those things slowly, right? So that's the stuff we put on us. What about the stuff we put in us, the things we eat and drink? Again, simple idea is that moving away from things that are heavily processed, that have lots of ingredients, have lots of preservatives, have lots of pesticides and all that, which means processed packaged things, right? So the, the faster we can move away from those things and go towards organic, real food, you know, food that's going to perish, assembling your own meals, cooking as much as you can, doing those things are going to be a significant improvement to your microbiome. And then thirdly, in terms of what you don't want to expose yourself to, we tackle personal care products. We tackle food and drinks that you consume. The third thing is your environment, your ecosystem in your home and, and all that. You don't want to sterilize these environments, right? There are certain aspects of the environment, maybe your toilet, you want to sterilize from time to time or something, but most surfaces do not need to be sterilized. People overclean and over-sterilize their ecosystem. And that allows for the proliferation of the more dysfunctional organisms, right? Most surfaces in my house are clean with a spray bottle of water and a couple drops of essential oil just to give some fragrance, right? If I bring home a, a, a chicken, a raw chicken, you get raw chicken juice on the counter, I'm going to sterilize it because there could be salmonella there, right? So certain things like that, sure, but for the most part, don't sterilize your home environment, right? So that will reduce then your exposure to not only chemicals that will harm your microbiome, but also reduce your exposure to potential microbes that will overgrow in your own home that are that are pathogenic and cause more problems, right? This is why hospitals are one of the most dangerous places you can be is because they're over-sterilized and then there's all of these pathogenic organisms that do well in that environment, right? So three things there about reducing exposure to things that harm your microbiome, personal care products, foods and drinks that you consume that are overly processed and packaged, and then your home. Don't have a sterilized home, right? So those that's reducing exposure to things that harm your microbiome. What about the second category, which is increasing exposure to things that are beneficial for your microbiome? Probiotics and prebiotics aside, a diversification of your diet, right? The more diverse your diet is, the more diverse your microbiome is gonna be, the healthier you'll be overall. Number two, being outside and being prescriptive about being outside, right? So being in natural environments. It is fine to sit on your porch. It's not quite the same as going for a hike in the natural environment or go to the beach and sitting in the sand and so on. It's still better than being inside. So being outside as much as you can. Now, the other thing to step up the effect of being outside is to eat outside as much as you can, right? That is the most natural way in which we interact with the environment is eating food outside. So one of the things I encourage people is like, if you're going for a hike or something like that, you're going to be outside, you know, take a snack with you, take an, an apple or, you know, whatever you might want to eat, take it with you. And during your hike, touch and grab lots of stuff, right? Remember humans are designed as curious creatures. We pick up things, we look at things, we touch texture of things, right? So as you're walking through a trail, touch the trees and pick up rocks and sticks and all that, feel the leaves and feel how this leaf feels different from that leaf, right? All the things we were curious about when we were kids gaining exposure to the environment. And then at some point, sit down in that natural environment and pull out your, you know, sandwich or apple or whatever it may be and eat it, right? And don't sterilize your hand with a hand sanitizer before doing that. 
that is the most natural way of interacting with nature and the environment, and it will absolutely diversify your microbiome, right? So exposure by getting out in the natural environment and then improving the diversity of your diet. You can also improve the diversity of your home by improving getting a pet, like a dog, especially an inside-outside animal. There are studies that show that dogs in household reduce allergies, asthma, and, and viral infections in kids, right? And increase longevity as well. And another way of increasing exposure is to deliberately be affectionate with people, right? I'm a hugger. I like to hug people. I like to be in environments where there's lots of people, you know, try to make it a point to be in person with people and hug them. So we actually know that that kind of interaction increases the diversity of individuals' microbiomes, right? So one category of things of how to not harm your microbiome, another category is simple things of how to enhance your microbiome. Between those two, we start adding in all those behaviors. It'll cumulatively add on to a huge impact of your microbiome. Then you add in therapeutic probiotics and prebiotics and supplements and all that, and you'll be doing well. And the final thing is stress maintenance, right? Managing stress. As I mentioned earlier, stress becomes one of the biggest drivers of dysfunction and managing stress, whether it's a just, you know, honestly taking a look at your environment, your relationships and things that actually create stress in your world. Do you need all of those things in your world, right? The scrolling through social media, does that relax you or does that stress you out, right? Does watching certain things and all that stress you out or does it relax you? You have to be honest with yourself about those things and start to reduce your exposure to things that stress you out. Start trying to build practices that improve your, your mood and then using things like the psychobiotics that can really give you an edge in managing stress. But we have to manage stress. That's one of the most important things. And when you manage stress, you'll automatically sleep better. That's another very critical component. But those kind of go hand in hand. If you're stressed, you cannot sleep. And if you're sleeping well, it means you're probably not that stressed. This has been amazing. I feel like what was what did you say with the bacteria, the quorum signal? Like I, I uh, the bacil bacillus, yeah, that does all the quorum sensing, right? I I feel like whatever is in me is in you. Like my nerd, <laughs> the nerd in me sees the nerd in you, and I have absolutely thrived listening to this conversation. I've been taking notes because I think I'm going to apply some of the things that you clarified to the protocols that I. And, and the the verbiage and the message that I send out to my own patients and clients and followers, because you really do a beautiful way of explaining things in a way that I think people can understand. It's a very complex process in our body. And I love your curiosity and how you just boil it down to like, what's naturally happening? Let's get back to that. I really, really loved this conversation. I so appreciate the time that you've spent. And yeah, I'm like, I, I want to have your, your text <laughs> text questions all the time. It's so amazing. So thanks again for all that you've shared with us as practitioners and with everybody listening, because it's just been really, really clarifying. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me, because one of my big goals is to you know, empower uh, practitioners like yourself that are on the front lines dealing with the most complicated of cases with the right information that'll really move the needle for your patients, right? Because I know it's equally frustrating for you when you don't see the progress in your patients and you take all of that stuff on because most of your practitioners because you're supremely empathetic people and that can be harmful to your own being yeah. you know taking on all of the things that come with the, with seeing patients and one of the things i realized that often gets forgotten in the practice of medicine 
is is the importance of the basics, right? We can do a lot of fancy supplementations and tests and all that stuff, and there's you know thousands of dollars worth of tests that you can put your patients through, but you know, what does their home microbiome looks like? Are they going outside enough, right? Are they managing stress? What does their diet look like? You know, just those basic things to think about that really will move the needle. And if they're not doing those things, all the supplementation, all the testing in the world may still not help them, right? Because those are the foundations of existing as a human. So for me, that's my goal. So I, I, I greatly appreciate any opportunity I get to share this information because it does nothing for anyone sitting in my head. So, <laughs> right. Well, I think you brought up a really great point that's really been on my heart lately is to simplify things because yeah. I get a lot of feedback that people get stressed out with like a food sensitivity test where now all of a sudden you got these random things you can't eat and how to keep track of that. So trying to eliminate that, even not even allowing that as an option in my practice anymore, but also the bag of supplements to for this and that and this and that. And, and I really have been trying to focus in on how can we simplify this? And and it really does come down to honing in first and foremost on digestion and detoxification and allowing those capabilities. And really that can be, as you shared, very simple and getting back to the basics and really honing in on some very targeted, not a humongous amount of supplements, but integrating lifestyle with some very few amount of supplements that can really help pro proliferate that and improve those systems in our body. So thank you again for really tapping into the simplification because I think people need that. I mean, and it comes back to we are just human beings. And if we were meant to thrive without any of these sexy technology things, right. then still meant to thrive without all the sexy, expensive things, there's a place for them, but I don't think they're absolutely essential. So yeah, thank you for kind of boiling it down to that. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, I could pick your brain for hours. So we may have to get you back on the podcast. <laughs> I feel like there's so many things we could dive in. Next. Yeah, I, I would be happy to anytime. Just let me know. My whole goal right now is sharing this information. So I appreciate the opportunity for that. Yeah, thank okay. you so much. And I hope all of our listeners got so much out of that. I know I'm gonna I'm gonna be going back and taking notes and notes and notes. So yeah, thank you so so much for letting us pick your pick your brains and just being here today. So appreciate you and wishing everyone all the best. So take care, guys, and you can see soon. Thank you. Bye. If you love this episode, be sure to leave us a review, download, and subscribe. If you know someone that could also benefit from this conversation, please share. That's how we spread empowered health. We'll see you again for another episode of the Wild and Wild Collective. Thank you.